This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 22, Return of the Mac, a survey of left accelerationism. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today's show asks the question, what is left accelerationism? We identified a group of texts seen as fundamental to left accelerationism. The first is Karl Marx's Fragment on Machines from Grundrisse. Also, Deleuze and Gattari's Accelerationist Fragment from Antiedipus. Alex Williams and Nick Cernicek's Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, as well as Antonio Negri's response to the manifesto. Also, we'll have Mark Fisher's Terminator vs. Avatar and Nick Land's Teleoplexy. Of course, there are several more unannounced pieces at work in our understanding of accelerationism, some of which may come up in today's discussion. What I thought I would do is first, let's start with definitions and see if we can generate a collective understanding of what is left accelerationism. I've identified four points, and I will start it off. I will put it out there first, and then I will have Matt, Will, and Adam, who are with us today. They will also come in and either critique, support, celebrate what I initially lay out here in these four premises. The first I have is the basic premise of any leftist accelerationism is that capitalism has changed since its origin in the industrial era and through its emergence throughout Fordism and other forms of capitalist productivity since that time. It continues to change, and therefore emancipatory prospects also change and must be considered accordingly. Number two, the objectivity of fixed capital and its relative autonomy in the sphere of capitalist relations simultaneously pose both the biggest obstacle and instigate the most salient opportunities for escape from the capitalist system. In order to understand that premise, we'll need to go into Marx's fragment on machines. The third thing I have is Mark Fisher's notion of we're always already being accelerated. Everybody's an accelerationist. Like, what does that mean? And Deleuze and Gattari's notion of the middle or the intermezzo in the rhizome suggests that lines of flight from capital may already be inherent within any given iteration of capitalism. What is required, however, is a new delirium, partial dismantlings, and a reorganization of components, new bodies without organs, to unleash forces repressed by capital. New bodies without organs, they're always being created and they're dying off. But can the left collectively institute those which afford the most enlivening and most sustainable of revolutionary prospects? One which should end up in what would be the sufficient condition for any leftist victory, which is seizing the means of production. And lastly, being a left accelerationist involves first a recognition and acceptance of the previous points. There exists, however, a practical and theoretical set of tendencies which branch off from these premises. Arguably, many of them branch towards reactionary pathways. So with that said, that's my introduction. Who would like to come in first? I think one of one of the best sort of encapsulations I've ever read of something like left accelerationism is actually from um, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, um, which is obviously a text and a, and a figure we talk about all the time here. Um, but as someone who was, you know, 
very well acquainted with land in particular. Um, I think he has a certain level of authority on that subject. Um, there's a passage in Capitalist Realism where he says, and this, is, this is a quote, um, an effective anti-capitalism must be a rival to capital, capital, not a reaction to it. There can be no return to pre-capitalist territorialities or romantic attachment to politics of failure. Anti-capitalism must oppose capitalism's globalism with its own authentic universality. Um, and I think that's an, an, a nice sort of way of, of encapsulating what left accelerationist thought seems to um, take as its, at its core is the it's firstly the idea there can be no return to pre-capitalist territorialities. Um, so there's this um, on the negative side of accelerationism, there's a critique of contemporary or modern left political organization, I suppose. Um, you find this in the Williams' work and Cernchik's work, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, and most of the rest of it, but um, the left, in their view, is uh, largely still too attached to these nostalgic sort of um, forms of organization um, and political action which are inadequate to the new situation which we are confronted with. Um, and then on the positive side of that um, understanding, there's also a... Um, there's, there's a positive side to it as well, which says we need to build a uh, program which um, doesn't, which, which, it's just this idea of going through capitalism rather than, you know, back out of it, right? Um, what can we do with capitalism to reorient it um, towards the left, I suppose, towards a, um, something the left would recognize as a, uh, a left um, political program? So that's all I have to say for that, other than I think that Fisher's quote neatly encapsulates a lot of the key parts of uh, left accelerationist thought, the sort of critique of the left, but also the sort of more programmatic element of it as well. So, yeah, so there's, I think what we're coming out of this with is sort of a, a tripartite sense of the term accelerationism, because there is an immediately, in the first sense, a very detached sense of accelerationism as an analysis in which you simply accept that there is not simply a trajectory of capitalist speed, there is a speed in accelerating. There's the accelerating progress of technology of productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's quite a really trivial analysis, but it's still quite core to it. And then in terms of the political aspect of acceleration, there is only really two sort of camps you can be in. Either that capitalism is the emancipatory tendency that is to be accelerated, that it's being inhibited by, say, for example, its own political organization and conjectures, or that capitalism produces a tendency which capitalism itself represses. And this is the tendency within capital we to accelerate in order to further its destruction. Uh, the sense in which, for someone like Land, uh, capitalism and its tying to democracy and, liber and uh, forms of government keeps it back from its true potential as a deterritorializing and for him quite a, libert a libertarian kind of force, but yes, you're assigned for Fisher. There's a tendency even capital that it can't quite recuperate this at this inner limit. This is the thing we have to accelerate. We can't let it be covered up by ideology or capitalist realism. We need to do this consciousness raising effort so we can become conscious of this process and then grasp it in the right moment in order to properly strike. Will, you and I have been talking about how fundamental Marx is to an understanding of the definition of left accelerationism. So maybe you could say a few things about that for your intro comment. In Marx's analysis, both in Grundrisse and in Capital, we sort of get um, this introduction of the machine as sort of a response to the limitation of labor hours, right? Like the working population was reaching sort of its limit for its capacity to like not revolt, right? And the state sort of jumps in and creates new axioms within which the capitalist class needs to operate. So rather than trying to sap as much time out of the laborer, 
what the the introduction of the machine allows is for an increase in intensification of the labor. So labor time becomes sort of more intensified. And, and I don't know if the if the state is inherently uh, completely separate from at least that initial manifestation. So I'm excited to to jump into this, but like I I I really do think that we ought to start with with Marx and this bit from the Grindrissa, um, because I think once we have a good understanding of fixed capital, then maybe I can sort of see where. Um, people like McKay, Land, and the rest are coming from. What we'll do is we'll put a finer point on what it means to be fixed capital. I think what's important is how fixed capital becomes a kind of objectivity under capitalism. And like, what, what does it mean for capitalism to change? I mean, of course, on the face of it, uh, we can talk about different ways that things have been produced, just-in-time production, things that we covered in our episode on Hart and Negri earlier on this year. We can go back to that. But I think what Marx identifies is there's been a tendency, not only within capitalism, but in the history of human social productive relations that starts with the division of labor. I mean, what's the most fundamental division of labor that human beings have experienced? It's basically sexual reproduction, right? On one side, you have from there, we have an upscaling of productivity of, of various forms that involves different kinds of division of labor over different historical processes. When it comes to capitalism, however, you get a unique form of division of labor, the human subject and their tasks become so finely attenuated over time that a person might spend eight hours a day doing the same thing on an assembly line for the next, you know, 10 to 15 years of their life, depending, right? And then what happens is this creates the conditions by which machines can come in and take over and automate and then replace human beings as primary in the productive role. What Marx sees as both a risk and a potential avenue for emancipation is automation. Why? Because it displaces the necessity of human labor to recreate the conditions of our existence. The problem is that it displaces the role of the worker in the production and reproduction of the capitalist system, uh, sometimes putting workers out of jobs, sometimes creating new kinds of jobs, but regardless, Automation brings with it a whole new set of exigencies, plus it requires more resources to automate, so it's a bigger drain on available resources. So nonetheless, the primacy of machines as a productive entity in the capitalist milieu gives machines and automation a kind of objective status. One of the consequences of human labor being subordinated to automation is that it can occlude the fact that it was human labor that built the machines to begin with. And also, it is automation that requires interventions of human labor for maintenance and development as you go down the line. And I think this is where the problem begins with acceleration and also its prospects. There's more that I could say. I, I think there's a really good tie-in here to talking about anti-Oedipus and the body without organs that we could get into. I don't want to go down that road yet, but maybe we can come back to that after you guys say a few more things. Yeah, I think that what we need to see about the, again, the manifestation of the machine is that sort of uh, capital, which Marx sometimes ascribes like a self-awareness to, um, which I guess in a certain sense uh, 
some accelerationist texts do that. Capital can sort of uh, orient itself around a new situation uh, and always ensure the the creation of uh, relative surplus value, right? Um, but yeah, I think what's interesting, I, I really like that the the drawing the line between sort of the most simple um, uh, productive relations to now ones that are so obfuscated and complex that it's it's it becomes increasingly and we did this you know months ago with Hart and Negri you know and and Matt made the point that it becomes increasingly difficult to see where these lines are drawn right because uh, capitalist relations also like intertwines of biopolitical relations and things like that yeah and I think an important point here is to make a distinction between the notion of perception. And uh, like, what does obfuscation mean here? Because this is where we begin the dispute about ideology versus the structure of desire, too. Because what happens is perceptions do change. The delirium of the worker is impacted by the, the creation of the machinic edifice of capital. But also what happens is they confront in very real terms the effects of automation, in the sense that, well, now you don't have a job anymore. And also when they go to the market and they see all the things that automation has created too. So I think that that's an important point to bring in. So what Deleuze and Gattari say is that the body without organs of capital produces the true perception of a false movement. The false movement, as I see it, is the presupposition of private property becoming reinstantiated again and again through upscaled, higher-order forms of productivity in the form of automation. Their idea of the body without organs isn't reducible to that example, but I think it's a salient one regardless. Yeah, I wanted to quickly add there that um, this is actually, you know, e- even take, you know, setting aside um, the relationship between Deleuze and Guattari and Marxism, um, both of these are observations are pretty much consistent with most um, even relatively orthodox Marxist um, uh, thinking as well, which is why you know we're talking about Marx and accelerationism. Um, first, because on the one hand, even going back to someone like um, Alfred Cern Rettel, the idea of real abstraction, um, he takes seriously the idea that there are certain abstractions which we experience in our lives, which nevertheless have a very material basis in the sense that they are they're not just imaginary. I mean, if we think about it in the right way, we can sort of see, you know, um, see past the mirage. No, they're real and they're produced by certain, you know, material processes. Um, and, um, on the other hand, this, but, you know, I always bring him up, um, but Georg Lukács, um, you know, back in 1923, he was he was also talking about the what you can now clearly see, although he didn't have a vocabulary for it at the time, I don't know, I don't think so, um, uh, was essentially about automation and the displacement of uh, manual physical labor by, by, by machines themselves, um, embodied in that machine and sort of accelerated exponentially um, and, to, and up to the point where the worker becomes almost um, uh, superficial. Um, and from the perspective of machine, a kind of um, anomaly within the perfect uh, productive process, which needs to be um, corrected for um, and minimized as far as possible. Um, so there's also a through line where um, you know, Marxist thinkers have also been sort of considering these questions for quite a long time as well. Um, and so it's interesting to me that there's this sort of perspective that this sort of rediscovery of Marxist fragment on machines gave us this new view on Marxism uh, and Marx's work. But for me, it's it's pretty much always been there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's a fundamental point to make, you know, that, that every time... 
you know, <laughs> we, we get these invocations of this, this new reading of Marx that essentially that, that, that's always sort of been at the forefront of, of Marx's understanding of the, the capacity of, of, uh, of fixed capital within, within this relation. There's something positive in this in the sense of, uh, I guess, in the sense of an affirmation of the refusal of work because these machines, what they do, they replace people. And at the same time, there is a sense in which this gives rise to a kind of Ludditeism. I don't know how you'd quite say it, but um, in the sense of people identify, workers identifying with the bare sort of strains of mechanistic work they've already been put into, but they'd be replaced by something which stands against them as an alien power in quite a more direct way. To their to their boss because it shows the inhumanity of it. You can't feel sympathy for this. You know, you can't go to the same church as uh, as the factory as, as the machine and it sits in the higher, you know, more upper class seats. This is a in a way a, a more real abstraction because the machine is the the worker or a constellation of workers doing a similar process, abstracted of all human sensuality and all uh, even self consciousness. But I think what the accelerate, what some accelerationists may want to think about this in terms of nature of intelligence, nature of artificial intelligence, is how this sort of self consciousness can return to the machine for its own developing productivity. Because as as the laboring as laboring humanity puts more of itself into these things, and we get better at it, you know, machines are only as smart as the person that programs them. This constant stream of kenosis will possibly open up a space in which intelligence can realize itself in a more self-conscious way in the machine. I think this is to the extent what Resnick Garastani is trying to do in terms of thinking of a network of interpersonal nodes, kind of like a Hegelian spirit, but along the lines of a general artificial intelligence. Before we get off of the topic of the fragment on machines and automation and fixed capital, I, I want to highlight two examples that Adam and I talked about in previous days. I mean, the standard example is right. Machines outproduce humans in the production of a widget, right? So you create this machine, it can do things human beings can't, therefore it increases the reserve labor army. Um, however, it does bring some people back in to tend to the machines, but the sort of non-standard example, which shows the ways in which fixed capital manipulates consciousness, I think are really interesting. And I, I would love to just dive into more examples like these. I'm just not Johnny on the spot to think of so many, but maybe Adam, can you recall the GameStop example that we talked about the other day and TikTok? Uh, yes, the, the reserve army of labor hours and laborers and the precarious work that we have today is what will find its exacerbation, its relationship to the machine in this, in this recent competition by which uh, GameStop workers were told to do funny TikTok dances in exchange for what money? Uh, no, more hours. They were t essentially the machine mediates their access to hours given how superfluous they are. They're not at you know, in 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 the liberating supposed power of the machine. As long as these are privately owned, these turn into techno feudalism. You simply ask for more hours from your lord to acquire the sustenance, even though you know. Well, it's not exactly true of GameStop. You know, you couldn't have as many copies of Assassin's Creed as you could eat, but in terms of value, it's not too far off. And these just weren't normal hours. This was like Black Friday hours, the most punishing day of the year. And it was uh, it remained a question as to whether or not they were going to get paid overtime or double time or anything like that. You should be grateful for those hours. Someone else would take them. <laughs> right. <laughs> they will. <laughs> yeah. That's how the reserve labor army works. I know, but... I like we we keep dancing around the the industrial reserve army, the lumpen proletariat, the social scum. Um, 
but man, like all of this is like begging us to do to do an episode on Takun. But anyway, like coming attractions, um, because like man, there's a possibility that the the uh, the uh, Industrial Reserve Army and Marx is far more complicated than just this handful of sections in Capital. But uh, one one point before we move on from uh, from this fragment is I, I just want to read one sentence from Marx. Nature builds no machines, no locomotives, railways, electric telegraphs, self-acting mules, etc. These are products of human industry, natural material transformed into organs of the human will over nature or of human participation in nature. They are organs of the human brain created by the human hand, the power of knowledge objectified. And I think that's sort of central to the Landian notion of acceleration and sort of on uh, how knowledge acquisition processes sort of beget their own expansion and, and acceleration from the beginning. Um, so, and, and I'm sure Matthew can give us a decent explanation of what this means hyperstitionally, but I think that that's sort of the center of, of this fragment. I, I have to admit, I did find the, it was overly humanistic, that fragment. And I was reading it. I just thought, ah, Herr Feuerbach, forgets the heute. You know, it, it's like nature builds no machines. Nature builds machines all, all the time. Right. Like, the, you know, there is a machinic division of labor and, you know, and, and Hank Colney's much as a, a, a beehive. I just think it's a, it's overly humanistic to do, to um, put it in those sorts of terms. I, I understand that. But I think that when we talk about sort of these, when he says like machines, right, he doesn't like because a, a group of workers can constitute a machine, right? That is what the abstraction of labor is. Um, but or right with the whole Nietzschean, like let's not separate the human world from the industrial world. But that is a ridiculous and sort of uh, synthetic separation, and that's part of the issue too. Is that even with this foundation of acceleration, the humanism is actually permeated throughout, um, and it's even in. And we were talking about this yesterday. It's it's even sort of in in Land's essay that we're going to cover later. But it's but it's extraordinarily present in the MAP. Yeah, and maybe that's what we'll move on to right now. I know, um, Matt, you were excited about getting into this. What were your initial impressions, uh, given the sort of critique that you have readied against accelerationism? It's interesting because I... I, I, maybe about a year ago, I was, I was really interested in this sort of line of thinking of lactic televisionist thoughts, you know, um, the manifesto for accelerationist politics, um, their, uh, their other later book, uh, Inventing the Future, and a number of other texts in this area by both from, you know, Fisher and other, and other big figures. And then over time, I just became a little bit more, um, skeptical about this. I think this is about the time when I presented a paper in, um, Huddersfield on, um, Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. Um, and part of it is that there's this obvious kind of teleology at work in any kind of accelerationism. Um, and, you know, some of them will either, will either simply deny that and or, or find a new way of, you know, we uh, cashing that one out. Um, but then there's this, uh, I, I've, I haven't found a perfect way of expressing this, but um, firstly, the, the critique I, I, I've sort of had, I suppose, of it is that there's no logical reason why, um, you know, the, total ecological catastrophe should not happen first before 
um, the full development of capital and automation, etc., reaches its apex, right? Um, so there's a sort of logical element to it, which taken itself would might lead might lead to those you know developments, but then the real kind of intrudes back in sort of cap the the thing which capital tries to um you know uh, repress and 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 uh, externalize and so on um but reading through the manifesto again and having a chance to having a look another look at um inventing the future i think it's i still think it's a really really interesting and and um important um perspective on the future of left politics um i sort of pithily tweeted earlier that the only real like meaningful um ideological debate to be had within left thought really is between accelerationism and communization. Um, and many people have drawn various links between those, um, between those two different sort of ideologies, uh, not, not least um, Ray Brassier um, himself. And I think what we find in the manifesto for accelerationist politics is it's, it's what I said earlier with that sort of uh, negative critique and positive, positive proposals. Um, on the one hand, there's a critique of um, how the left has traditionally um, organized itself, its conception of um, uh, political praxis and, and so on. Um, and that is explored a little bit more fully later on in Inventing the Future, um, where they label it uh, folk politics, which they call a kind of ob- obsession with um, horizontality, direct democracy, prefigurative politics, um, these kinds of things, um, direct action in the streets and, you know, temporary autonomous zones, that kind of, sort of view of what politi- uh, left politics is. And they critique this on the basis that um, it simply lacks any kind of um, efficacy. It doesn't really achieve anything. And if you want to see how much it's achieved, just look at the world today, right? You know, um, QED, right? Um, <laughs> um, and on the other hand, there is a there's also a positive proposal about the importance of um, taking what it is that capitalism has developed in terms of the technology available to us, seeing the ways in which it isn't really made use of properly under capitalism um, and you know, going through it, trying to find ways of making those uh, platforms, as as they call it, um, work um, for us rather than against us, I suppose. Um, that's maybe one way of, sort of summarizing in, in a slightly short way what, what the, the text says. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit rambly because I've sort of started off with my preconceptions there, I suppose. Um, I, I still find it a really interesting area to consider, and I think it, it's, it's perfectly in keeping with um, one reading of, of Marxist theory, going back to Marx, through Lenin, through all the, through all the others. Um, it's not the only one available to us, um, but it certainly bears... Um, you know, there's reading and, 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 and taking seriously, I think. I mean, for one, to go back sort of to the Lars Guantari discussion, the MAP makes the, the point, which I think needs to be quite reaffirmed all the time for a, le- a truly leftist accelerationism, is that we cannot simply dive purely to deterritorialization and think that that agent that is about to do that is capitalism, is its purest, because you know, as, as, as they say, as Deleuze and Guattari recognized from the very beginning, what capitalist speed deterritorializes with one hand, it re-territorializes with the other. This, this is sort of undermines a very typical reading of this piece, where do you think, I mean, they say, you know, they want to use the material basis of liberalism, of neoliberalism for, uh, for sort of a communist kind of end. But at the same time, they're not trying to take away, it's not trying to take away, it's re-territorializations. However, you have to think about the sort of re-territorialization of, of thinking and practical leftist thinking that goes on in modern capitalist states. So I'm thinking mainly of Britain, where 
these kind of very futuristic leftist ideals, these kind of groups that try to establish a new frontiers on the horizon, they, they tend, if they want to do what the, uh, the MAP wants to do and sort of start a kind of leftist Mont Pelerin society, they yeah. tend up to be yeah. um, absorbed into a sort of very sort of Fabian sort of style think tank structure. Like it's weird reading some like articles from ostensibly right wing Blair like Blairite sort of MPs who like who like talking about Marx all the time, just sort of shit on leftists, but they act like oh, we are the superior Marxists. And eventually, I think you can be really territorialized into this sort of thing, which you compromise too much for the sake of the possibility of maybe hearing this process possibly heard out maybe one day in Parliament. And then I think you get into sort of the same sort of trap that I think someone like who was like quite you know, wrote quite some interesting stuff on post capitalism like Paul Mason did, where you know he said he said and I quote, "If you don't think uh, Keir Starmer is going to advance the class struggle, you don't understand social democracy from a Marxist viewpoint." And I think that's the sort of headspace you get into if you try to sort of institutionalize yourself. So I think maybe one of the things that the MAP could have elaborated on a bit more is. The possibility of a platform, the possibility of the network in which they would sort of be able to spring themselves about from. It's it's fair enough they like go against sectarianism, but have, have they met leftists? <laughs> right. I I think though that they sort of make that impossible when they say like we're not here to give a program, right? Like we don't present any particular organization as the ideal means to embody these vectors. Um, they say that sort of explicitly. And then at the same time, they're sort of begging us to have a sort of technological literacy that can create sort of subversive forms of knowledge, as Negri calls it. But, you know, and Negri always plays it fast and loose with the MAP because, like, he knows that both in a Deleuzean and a Foucauldian sense that subversive forms of knowledge, right? Like, um, I, I don't know if that's sort of how discourse or development works, right? Because as you said, everything it deterritorializes on the one hand, there's always a partial and then full re-territorialization on the other. Um, so, you know, uh, the, this desire for a Promethean politics is fascinating, but in a, some sense, in some ways, like I, I almost want to to look at to live and think like pigs and say hey well the neoliberals are actually doing exactly this exactly right like yeah. it, this is almost a manifesto for neoliberal politics and like if that's what you want it to be like go right ahead that's sick but like dude you do you like i i appreciate yeah. whatever contribution to the political discourse you can provide but like this is not i don't think this is like the leftist escape that it 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 uh it sort of presents itself to be and it's so on the nose with the use of lenin at the very top right yeah. <laughs> because as matthew will sit around on 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 twitter on the timeline so he'll go like bro it's a different strain bro like this form <laughs> of this form of of uh of exploitation it's different bro you'll still die at a factory at 45 but bro it'll be for the the emancipation of all mankind bro come on i can't understand how anyone can read lenin talk about how under socialism um society will become one great factory floor and office room um and not really find their revolutionary souls stirred um, by that vision. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, gets, it gets me going, you know. And at the um, same time, like, they, of course, they had to cite the infantile disorder uh, text. Like, yeah. they, they, they couldn't just do it with a wink and a nod. Like, it had to be straightforward and upfront. So I, I think it's a cool text, but 
I I'm not sold yet. If I if I can, I really want to say a little more about that because um, I think Will's absolutely right. Um, particularly because they well they openly say that um, it's about sort of taking what neoliberal liberal capitalism has sort of um, done and you know pushing that on further in a certain way, right? Um, so it does end up in this kind of um, technocratic. Um, technocratic socialism at best you know um and in terms of the actual um praxis that this would involve it's, it's it gets to a point where it's, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between um at least you know i'm being a little bit unfair here right but hey i'm allowed to be um it becomes difficult at times to tell the difference between a left accelerationist and just a neoliberal um in the sense that the the actual practice they're engaging in is is pretty much not there's no real difference you know um, and you could sort of see a lot of what neoliberalism, neoliberalism does, um, particularly in sort of social democratic forms, um, as much the same is, is trying to say, well, you know, we can't work against technology, so let's work with it and try and use some of this to, you know, redistribute and reconfigure some of the smaller elements. Um, and obviously their vision goes much, does go beyond that. They do have much um, loftier ideals about what socialism can achieve for people. So I'm not going to completely, you know, throw them under the bus fair. It would be unfair to say we're the same thing. But um, uh, left acceleration does seem to have this problem of um, distinguishing um, how, even if you're aiming at different ends, if, if the means look to be the same between you and actual neoliberals, then it's not clear how the means won't themselves transform the ends you're aiming for. Here's just a list of axioms once again. What is the sufficient condition for exiting capitalism? Well, it's the workers owning the means of production. What is one of the most critical crises that we face? It's the climate change crisis. Step three, we cannot overcome the climate crisis until we achieve a viable form of socialism. I think if you cringe at any one of those claims, particularly the first one being the workers owning the means of production, if that makes you wince or suspect, I doubt your leftist credentials. Yeah. Third, I'm a gauntlet. Now, next step is this. Going into the MAP, one of the challenges that I have with it, maybe I'll say the thing that I like about it is, I think we should not doubt the importance of technological advance and... uh the ways in which capitalism has delivered the goods, I do think, you know, in line with Marx, it is capitalism that is going to create the conditions by which socialism and communism are achievable in any sense, just straight up. Now, what I'm about to say actually isn't an argument for capitalism per se, but through the technological advancement of capitalism as humanity has experienced it so far, we have been able to create a leveling effect in developed countries which have allowed women to escape the kinds of menial household tasks that put them on a level playing field with men professionally, or at least provided to them the conditions that allowed them to get on that playing field. And I think it's by dint of the elimination of this subjective barrier between men and women that creates the conditions for the possibility of eventually escaping encastment by the capitalist system. The thing that I want to talk about next is what I see as perhaps a false problem presented in the MAP, which is opposing verticalism to horizontalism. One of the things that Mark Fisher points out is 
this notion of the harsh Leninist superego. And the MEP touches on a similar kind of superego or repression that takes place under a brute notion of horizontalism. I think it should be pointed out that the idea of horizontalism or anti-hierarchy, if that's what we mean by horizontalism, isn't necessarily a feature of all anarchist thinking or, or, or all socialist thinking. What we're talking about isn't horizontalism in the raw, not in some sort of ideal sense. We're just talking about workers owning the means of production, right? And I think it's important to make a distinction between those terms because the former tends to truck in this idealism, whereas the latter is completely materialist. My next step is then this. What's the problem with the vertical horizontal distinction? And is there anyone who has solved it? I think the intimations of the solution exist in the notion of transversality in the work of Felix Gattari. I think under a viable form of socialism, what you will have is you will have rival forces. A notion of competition in the social field does not necessarily presuppose the existence of a capitalist order. In fact, it could be argued that many forms of scientific advance are actually suppressed by the existence of capitalism and by privileging different forms of planning and enfranchisement of the labor, meaning giving them the means of production. I think it's more likely that we can see the kinds of flourishing and progress in our society that capitalism currently prevents. And this isn't to say there won't be things like jealousy or envy under socialism. In fact, Friedrich Jameson argues that there actually might be more of that. But I think that any serious socialist would accept that as a consequence of being liberated from the ruling class. There's something about the horizontal-vertical distinction which just doesn't do the work that it intends to do, because even under socialism, there's going to be rival forces between different groups or different groups of laborers, right? The question is, how can we build a kind or quality of interaction between rivals that allows for enlivenment and flourishing of society at large? And I tend to look at the way that Gattari handled his tenure at Laborde Clinic and the kinds of practices that he instituted to make sure that certain kinds of unconscious forces that exist within groups did not ultimately enable their destruction in the end. And without going into a whole lecture on transversality, I think and this is something we should come back to at some point, one of the important things to understand is that the notion of transversality is a plastic one. There are moments of centralization and there are moments of decentralization. There are moments at which expertise should dominate and then there's moments where direct democracy should come in. Ultimately, the guiding axiom isn't expedience or it isn't acceleration, it's desire itself and repression. And what's a little bit worrying to me, or a little bit suspect within the MAP, is that it places an emphasis on verticality and opposes it to horizontality in a way that I inherently don't trust. To me, what seems more important as a leftist is our ability to collectively enunciate desire rather than to accelerate or make more expedient the functions of desire. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think one of the problems is that... Um in their critique of what they call later folk politics, or at this point they don't have quite the word for it, um, it's very easy to say, you know, what have you achieved? What have you, you know, have you brought down governments? Have you, you know, destroyed capitalism yet? Or are you still trying, right? It's very easy to say that, but um, I, I, they they end up completely detached from, what, you know, the real movement out there. 
um, that, you know, if you want to know, you know, who is actually out there trying to um, oppose uh, capitalism, um, you know, if you, you, you can't stick any longer to this old analysis of, um, uh, which, you know, the, the orthodox Marx analysis, in my view, um, you need to look at the new social movements in particular, um, Occupy movements, you need to look at all these different things, because this is where you see actual um, politics being done. Um, and it's interesting if you take that perspective, if you read back through um, parts of the uh, manifesto, um, we may say, um, quote, we believe the most important division today's left between those that hold to folk, oh no, they do, they do have a word for it now, great, uh, I was mistaken, to a folk politics of localism, direct action, and relentless horizontalism, and those that outline what must be called an accelerationist politics at ease with, with a modernity of abstraction, complexity, globality, and technology. Um, it's interesting reading that because um, I, I suspect, and again, I'm trying not to be like pithy or unfair on the authors here, I think it's a great work. You could insert that sentence straight into a speech by Tony Blair, and it would not even it would not even remotely look out of place. It would look like um, a speech given at a Labour Party conference against the old left of the party. That's the point. That's what that's what makes me concerned about this text is essentially that like they, they both have the, the, the like them and sort of this this reassessment of groups like um, the invisible committee to like Andrew Kalp who we had on right they they too advocate for a sort of a secret a, a shift away from the obsessional disposition towards, uh, horizontal constructions, but it's done in a very different way, right? So I want to kind of remind everybody of a, of a moment, and this is not a program, where uh, the authors the, of the collective sort of say that if we look at Italy in 1977 and we look at May 1968, right, the reason why Italy in 1977 is different and why the focus ought to be there is because it was specifically a threat to the order of the time, right? So what, what Matt exposes here is that actually like an accelerationist left politics runs the risk of actually not being a threat at all, right? The fact that it can simply just be traced over a Blairite speech, right? Uh, sort of exposes the game a little bit if this is attempting to be a sort of radical politics. Because the the difference here is that a, a, a radical politics, at least to 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 Kuhn, to Kalp, to others, is that the reason it must hide in secret is because if it is subject to any sort of ocularity, right, if it's identified as a threat, then it faces a risk of collapse. Whereas accelerationism might actually just not be a risk and not be taking any flack, not be direct, not have any fire directed at it simply because of the reasons Matt outlined. And that's, that's definitely a danger. And especially because as I said earlier, you know, how I think they needed to flesh out a bit the sort of potentialities of the new network in which they will fund themselves. When they say we will need funding, it's like, okay, they talk about networks, you know, going beyond simply what, what was immediately given in terms of institutions. But, if 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 this is if this doesn't show up, then why are we not to assume that they're going to do like a Mont, you know, the Montpellier they want to do, and simply cozy up to capital and um, you take well, I mean, ironically with Blairism, there is actually one anti-accelerationist MP, but um, we'll, we'll leave him out of there because he doesn't need publicity. But um, <laughs> but it, it says, 
there is this sense of which it, it does feel like you're co- you're cozying up to capital, and essentially it, it does feel a bit like some of the arguments that I hear a lot in terms of the the true Marxist credentials of the Communist Party of China, because the argument seems to be at its basis is this: well, this 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 gargantuan behemoth of capital is going in this direction, whether you like it or not. Who would you rather have uh, driving it? And I think that's not only an argument of pure blackmail. It's also incredibly condescending argument to which, you know, you could sort of say, well, you know, you could try and say if your place of work from closing, but you could learn to code. Right. No, it's no different from like, it's no different from Rahm Emanuel this weekend saying that like all of these like coal miners should just learn to code. Right. Like, in fact, you know, these these political institutions that assert sort of in alignment with working class interests, like actually the best that they can do is say, like, "Eh, it's all collapsing anyway. You might as well fold in. Yeah. And I don't want to, um, you know, rag on what they're saying too much. And I especially don't want to assume bad faith because I've got enormous respect for both of the authors who who produce this. Yeah. Um, I think I still think it's really important to think this through. I mean, what, you know, the idea of getting out of capitalism by going through it. Um, you know, that if, if the central problem that left acceleration imposes is how do we get out of capitalism, right? Do we go through it, as, as you know, they, would, they would suggest? Um, and as Marx suggests watch, to a certain extent. Yes, but only only partially. There's a lot of debate about that. because it, So this was a, the fragmented machines was from the Gundrisa, um, and that was only really the workings out of what later became capital. And in capital, it looks a little bit different. So that's an open question, actually. It's not inconsistent necessarily, but it's not. Um, the only way of reading Marx. Um, what was I saying? Um, so I'm not assuming bad faith at all, but I think there never, nevertheless is a, um, there's a sense in which um, what sort of initially appears as a deeply radical project of trying to go so far beyond capitalism, a capitalist, capitalism itself kind of um, collapses out of its own redundancy, um, ends up looking, you know, in a final analysis, um, a little bit more like a sort of technocratic social democratic system. Um, and, you know, we'll change it so that, you know, there's still verticality, but it's less, you know, um, uh, like it's not like it is right now. Maybe it's about networks and things like that. Um, and that, that, that's fine, you know, but um, it, it, it ends up looking like um, uh, how do we um, reform capital towards um, towards the proper ends, um, which is, you know, the, the cornerstone of, um, you know, any kind of social democratic party ever really so i'm not like dunking on them anything like that i mean i love their work i, I want to hear more from them in the future um but i think this is something the left accelerationists do need to work out a little bit more is where where does the radicalism lie in the sense of challenging the power of capital over our lives and may, maybe that brings me back mm. into a kind of you know um disgusting humanism or whatever um but yeah I'm, which you I'm, keep I'm, taking uh, flack for <laughs> I keep owning up to it and getting flack for it, but you know, whatever. I think we should like go on sort of a, a Foucauldian line on this and say this is not a bad analysis at all. It is there is just parts of it which, in their undeveloped state, can be kind of dangerous to the sort of direction right. you want to take leftism yeah. in. Yeah. No, exactly. And and that's part of my issue with this idea of, again, like what I was talking about with this this assumption of a subversive knowledge. I mean, that's a a, a ridiculously a dangerous assumption to have. And while I think like the MAP is a, like probably one of the most interesting because like, look, there haven't been a ton of, uh, there really hasn't been a ton of uh, left discourse that's been fresh and new since May, 1968. Right. This is, this is really 
what we're dealing with right now. And and you 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 summed it up well when you said that the, the only real debate to be had currently is is the one between accelerationists. But there there is this one notion in Marx that I between think accelerationists and commun- communization. Yeah. yeah, communization and acceleration. Um, because Marx talks about maturing contradictions and antagonisms. Right. Then, in fact, that's what's being accelerated. Right. The acceleration of the concentration of capital is fundamental to its collapse. Right. That's so different from the kind of acceleration that we get from the MAP. Um, so when Fisher says uh, Marxism isn't anything if it's not accelerationist in Terminator versus Avatar, I think um, it's a it's it's a different breed of acceleration in capital, right? The 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 quote here is is on uh, three uh, six hundred and thirty five on the chapter machinery and large scale industry where he writes uh, the processes of production mature the contradictions and antagonisms uh, of the cap uh, of the capitalist form of that process and therefore ripens both the elements uh, for forming a new society and the forces tending towards the overthrow of the old one that and then he cites the the manifesto which says that you know the capitalist class creates nothing but its own grave diggers and to me this is sort of a, a an eschatology a political eschatology or just a a a thirst for collapse coming out of there there's a way of interpreting that i think through the accelerationist frame and this is what i appreciate about williams and cernichek's work here is i think it's a challenge to think acceleration like matt said without thinking telos the question remains for me is any amount of speed or navigational capacity ever going to get you to the exit? And then here's another question. Is there a minimum amount of acceleration that actually gets you to the conditions by which you can transcend capitalism? And if there are, have we already passed it? How do we know when we've gone past it? How do we know when it's time to go through the exit? What will be the indicators? What will intimate that possibility to us? I think that in any event, if there is a possibility of escaping the capitalist system, the underlying suggestion is that those possibilities will be presented to us through the capitalist system. And there's another really big question that I have about the project of emancipation, of rolling back the effects of climate change and so forth. We need to consider that the system that we have created under capitalism accelerates the flow of capital on capital's terms. So to reverse that or to create a viable form of socialism, what does that entail? Does that entail actually collapsing portions of the capitalist architecture, a massive reconfiguration of the components of the capitalist system into a newfangled socialist system? I mean, there are processes and operators within the capitalist system that are just completely destructive in and of themselves. I mean, one of the consequences of exploiting cheap labor in certain parts of the world has entailed the necessity to transport those goods very long distances. And producing goods in this manner has had a negative impact on our environment. And more than a fair portion of the expenditure under the capitalist system involves maintaining systems like these which consistently produce negative externalities in the form of climate change and so on. So to me, it stands to reason if we're going to do things that are going to roll back climate change, it's going to involve a massive collapse or involution of capitalist productive processes. So in the end, my final question is, if we are going to accelerate, what does that mean? Does that mean 
creating and enhancing and enlivening processes under the extant system of capitalism? Or does it mean coming to terms with the fact that some of these processes that have been said to accelerate our system actually need to be destroyed in order for us to survive? I mean, I guess I guess it depends what you want from a post-capitalism, because I sort of read sort of the, the enhancement of contradictions and antagonisms not simply as, as making... Uh, the collapse of capitalism or its destruction possible, but in a way making it easier. Because contradictions in the dialectical sense are a network of interdependence. And it's an interdependence of things through their mutual differentiation, through the process of, co- of contradiction. And sort of the higher sort of division of labor, the sort of the strengthening of the contradiction in, in the case of the machine. And this in this sense it becomes easier. And Marx admits this when he says, you know, the interruption of the machine is is actually the interruption of capital itself. It's the interruption of fixed capital. It's the interruption not simply of production, but the, the production of production, where the reproductive methods of capitalism actually become even more machinic. And I think, if, you know, given that I think the promise of accelerationism and also one of its greatest appeals is, is let's be honest, it's capitalism, but you can keep the stuff. I mean, you know, Mark Fisher says this in Terminator versus Avatar. Who wants to go back to the farms? You know, everyone go. You know, we we. All do some lovely quibbling criticism over some wine. We always, you know, it's uh, before COVID. It was very hard to go to a, a Marx conference and not go end up at the pub afterwards. I think the intensification of contradictions here is really sort of building up the system of interdependencies on machinic processes, such that their interruption becomes even more catastrophic. And this has been shown in, in the COVID crisis to an extent, because I mean, what in places like Britain and uh, especially places like Britain, which mainly runs on. Uh, the hot air of, of speculative finance. This is so machinic and so run on faith that if the merest interruption in the face of COVID and everything bloody imploded, I mean, people were being recruited on the end, just spinning out the same cycles of capital again and again via recruitment for recruitment for recruitment to teach algorithms to do coding to blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, all it took was not moving for five minutes. Machines stopped for five minutes and everyone completely blew a gasket. You know, I, I think I think the entirety of contradictions may not necessarily uh, imminentize the death of capitalism, but definitely makes it easier to the point at which you think it takes a lot less force than we may need. And then, of course, the attendant challenge is, all right, the machines are stopped. How is it to start new machines? You know, like, what, what do we come back to? We come back to the already existing architecture. So we have to start within the context with which we're already in, immersed to and that's any entire- change. That's that's Lenin's entire point, though, right? Like that 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 is the the position from which Lenin begins his analysis and critique of left communism. So, in a certain sense, yes. Um, but also, like then, it sort of shows the the awareness of the accelerationist project to the point where they're will, willing to to start from. That basis, I think, shows a sort of robustness to the project, but whatever. I think that's something that socialists, anarchists, communists can really learn from. I think the big takeaway from Mark Fisher and and Land and Williams and, and Cernicek here is this possibility of evacuating, you know, what, what Fisher calls the harsh Leninist superego. I think by developing an awareness like, look, here are the conditions that we're in. This is the situation. This is what the middle looks like. You know, what is the next order of action? And this is one of the problems with internet politics. People can wave their their flags and their alphabet soup, like Culp says, all day long. Yeah. But none of it pushes back against any of it. 
until no, it, it takes inventory of the situation and, and begins planning and begins praxis from that point. Well, I mean, I think part of the the way that you can sort of, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm going to do this, Adam, but I, I have to. One way you can look at the difference between uh, focusing on these sorts of uh, these politics of identification, right? Like I am a Trotskyist, I am um, a Marxist-Leninist, and the sort of politics of leading a double life that we see in Culp is you could just compare the final analyses of like a book like Dark Deleuze and then a book like Kill All Normies, right? And I know Adam's not going to like sigh, but um, right. The, the the difference here is that there's, yeah, there it is. Is that at least with Culp, you get a sort of uh, an understanding of what the project looks like. And that's why I'm like Supreme. I know I've been bothering you guys with like Culp essays here and there, but um, at least in, in his sort of Delizzo Guitarian framework, you get this sort of capacity for fused groups that you don't get in this sort of uh, uh, superficially sectarian, because like it's not actually uh, all that striated, but you get at least a, a an ability to create fused groups and, and and interests, where even even though this is sort of predicated on a refusal, right? It's a collective refusal. So at least in that space we can all sort of agree that relations as they're currently as they manifested and currently exist are not sustainable right whereas uh with uh the projects based in sort of fighting out these minute differences stay within that realm of not the present conditions right but step one million that's it, and that's precisely it. That's what philosophy is at base. It is an activity of refusal. It's one of a refusal of base presuppositions, even those which inhabit the identities which we choose and ascribe to ourselves. Yeah, like Heidegger right? with Aristotle and Plato, right? So, yeah. I don't know if this is moving us on or not, but um, to, I feel like, although I've said there's a lot of um, important work going on in accelerationist thought that the left needs to take, take seriously, and in, including in the MAP, I haven't really spelled out what what the central challenge posed by it is. Um, and I think the famous quote by um, Deleuze and Guattari, um, if I bring it up now, is maybe a good way of shifting over to that to that discussion, I suppose. Um, and it's, it's, it's where in um, Anti-Oedipus they say, which is which is the revolutionary path? Is there one to withdraw from a, from a world market as Samir Admin advises third world countries to do in a curious revival of the fascist economic solution? Or might it be to go in the opposite direction, to go still further, that is, in a movement of the market of decoding and deterritorialization? Um, and, you know, most probably familiar with that quote to finish off anyway. But um, that's really the, 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 the challenge that accelerationism as a uh, sort of school of thought um, poses to anyone on the left, I think, um, which is how do we um, how do we rise to be a challenge, right? Like, if, if are these the two options, and you know, if so, how do we navigate that? And if not, what are the what are the other options look like? Um, and so, I think it is worth the left really, you know, taking this seriously because it's an important one. Like, what what do what do our politics look like? What what is the future we want? Is it you know? Um, uh, what what uh, Fisher calls, you know, the return to the fields or something, 
um, or is it you know fully automated luxury space communism, um, or actually you know is is this a false dichotomy? Right? Are we are we being forced to choose between a binary uh, binary choice here, which itself is a false uh, a false one? Under fully automated luxury space communism, you could probably rent out a biodome that allows you to live a pretty decent harvest yield on ever your um, feudalist uh, fantasies, but. Um, Space Airbnb, yeah. Yeah, essentially. I mean, <laughs> you could do a, a whole silent running kind of deal, but a bit posy, but more optimistic. But yeah, in terms of the, so I guess my final thoughts on acceleration is my guess, is that I kind of see, on, on an ontological level, death is a kind of acceleration, and capitalism death will need to be an acceleration of sorts. Because the acceleration... Sort of the, the rapid change in the state of things and the identity of things as needed to reconfigure something such that it can die, its identity can die, is destructive plasticity. And destructive plasticity is simply the means by which the acceleration of the disharmonizing of something's elements to keep it going, what Spinoza called its conatus, its endeavor, lead upon it to die. Now, there's, there must, now, insofar as capitalism exists, there must be a point of destructive plasticity, something within it that can be accelerated to bring its own demise about. I don't think capitalism itself can accelerate this, because it is itself a kind of destructive plasticity in the way it sort of accelerates the demise of the world around it. But I think where, where we sort of have some hope for acceleration here is the acceleration of that which is honestly fleeting in our daily experience of, of capitalism and our social experience of capitalism, which is its immense ability to fail. Its immense ability to rec- it always recuperates itself, but there is always a glimpse of its absolute failure to respond to the crises of our age. It just because it continues to exist does not mean it is, is actually working with them. It's it's stubbornness. It's entirely stubborn in its identity, and that's why I think something like as well. I don't want to say acid communism, but I want to say post-capitalist desires, the consciousness raising that you get with Mark Fisher is so important to this, because the consciousness raising of Mark Fisher is an attempt to grab onto this fleeting failure before you know the the supine dogs of the media can really uh, recuperate it for you and feed it back to you. Um, and it actually sort of tries to build up this consciousness-raising process of, no, the totality is here. We will show you the totality. You can experience it yourself, and you can yourself as liberated from these organizations imposed on you by the capitalist order. And then when we have this sort of consciousness, we can then actually bring ourselves to challenge it, and not only that, to imagine it in a different way. Because capitalism gives us our imagination. And yet, it will never give us the full picture. In the same way that, you know, in a, in a, in a job centre, you'll be given all these forms. You won't be given the nature of why you're there in the first place. But I think it's this accelerative tendency of education, which I think can probably be the accelerative tendency in which we actually accelerate our own understanding of capitalism and our own capacities to act against it, and then forth bring, you know, trigger this ontological reserve of destructive plasticity underneath it to finally blow the fucker up. And I think this is why um, it's important to accentuate the need for an acid communism, a hallucinatory, effective difference from what capitalism is already imposing upon us every day. I think Mark was very right to hit upon that. What does that mean? I mean, it doesn't mean that we, we turn to hard drugs. In fact, he advises against that. But what it does mean is being able to foster like you said, not individual sort of paroxysms, but instead this sort of collective affectivity and mobilization of a different kind of desire that is unable to be recuperated by capitalism, and then 
almost like a kind of dream therapy in a way. Being able to experience ourselves collectively outside the already existing configuration of components that capitalism gives to us every day, that the world just gives to us every day. But like a dream, we have this break with the limit whereby the the components are seen in these unusual and weird and and often, uh, well, I'm not going to say eerie, but definitely a, a, a kind of weird and unfamiliar reconfiguration of themselves to the point that it strikes us with a new kind of desire. Because that, I think, is the sort of starting point of any revolution, is this enunciation of a repressed or burgeoning form of desire. And I think this form of desire that I'm talking about involves achieving a connection or a communication with our collective Socratic daimon. And what I mean by that is, there is this possibility that through the creation of class consciousness, we can articulate a collective no, which is to say that there are conditions that we will not tolerate anymore. Because the vision that I was able to see in having this limit experience, this collective ecstatic limit experience, was so compelling, we're not going back. And that's what Deleuze's May 68 did not take place is all about. It's that the the populace and society at large was able to experience themselves in such a way that they would not go back to previously offered standards. Now, granted, in in many respects, 68 was not a success, but it was a success insofar as it did create such a standard. The central problem that that accelerationist thought is trying to um, grasp hold of, particularly in its left accelerationist form, and this is the one that you know, um, Williams and, and Sonnenchek are trying to, to grapple with. Um, and there's a passage in um, Eclipse and Reemergence of the Communist Movement by, by uh, Gilles Dovey, where he says, um, uh, superficial critics of capitalism would like to get rid of its bad side, cars, banks, cops, while developing the good side, cycling lanes, schools, hospitals. Similarly, though many, though many primitivists would certainly appreciate the harmony of nature enjoyed by the Native Americans, Few would tolerate living under the domination of patriarchy and myth. While the North American potlatch happened in a non-market environment, it went along with hierarchy and power. And anyway, there is no going back. We cannot re- reenact the past. Um, and that's sort of the conundrum I think they're trying to, to face, right, is um, how to understand capitalism and sort of what, it, what, is, what is it that could actually oppose it without being simply a conservative and reactionary force. Adam, want to finish it off? Well, I mean, just to recap, I mean, as much as accelerationism is itself a floating signifier established in its own sort of separate discourse by the very fact we had a reader of it that didn't actually, you know, contain as many accelerationisms that were writers, I think a sort of a lesson of accelerationism is, especially for any left accelerationism, is the primacy of the practical. As Mark Fisher says, you know, you, some people want a Nietzsche in the same way, not a cheeseburger. Some people want to align the speed in the same way that they want the destruction of capital. And as, you know, as Serenstek and Williams both put it forward, and this land got horrifically wrong, to which the consequences of we are still suffering, you should not confuse acceleration with speed. You cannot snort liberation. <laughs> I guess that's the episode. <laughs> that has to be the title of the episode. That has to be the title of the episode, I think.
Thanks again for joining us on Acid Horizon. We will probably have to pick up this discussion at a later point. We did not get to go into very deeply uh, some of the texts that we mentioned at the beginning. So who knows, maybe that will be some Patreon-exclusive content in the near future. In the meantime, find us on Twitter to continue the discussion, or find us on Patreon to get access to a few months' worth of exclusive content for as little as $1 a month. Um, Also, there's some other goodies inside there, too. Some upcoming episodes will be a review of the newly released book on Simondin, translated by Taylor Adkins. Also, I'm going to try to convince the guys to do a reading of Fondaine's Existentialism. Let's see if we can do that. Some other episode ideas coming at us soon. In the meantime, take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.